Good morning. Uh, as was just said, my name is Nick Bratcher. I am uh, the, I'm your campus minister, actually, at the University of Kentucky. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, Reformed University Fellowship, what I work for, uh, is uh, a cooperative effort uh, on behalf of all the churches in our presbytery, the Ohio Valley Presbytery. So that means all the PCA churches in, you know, the lower uh, part of Ohio and, you know, the central and eastern part of Kentucky have banded together instead of one person being in charge of, one church being in charge of uh, the mission to the University of Kentucky, we've all come together and we share in that responsibility. And uh, your church is part of that. And so uh, in in a roundabout way, you guys are my boss. So it's nice to be with you today. Um, as I understand it, while Chad is, oh, I was going to say this too. If you know somebody going to the University of Kentucky, um, give me their number so I can hound them about buying them lunch. Um, I would love to do that for somebody that you know. Uh, that's not a, that's uh, just a side note. Okay. As I understand it, while Chad's on sabbatical, uh, you're in a series on the Psalms. And I'm not sure how others will have spoken to you about the Psalms, what they are. Maybe they treated them as prayers or connected them to the events you know, that, that birthed them or like, occasioned the writing of them. You know, today's David has uh, transgressed uh, God's law with Bathsheba. Maybe they even, you know, obviously were preaching them uh, like we're doing this morning. But the Psalms, I will say, in their original context, what they were originally meant to do, they functioned as the hymn book for ancient Israel, right? They are, they are meant to be sung. And uh, uh, because they are meant to be sung, they are songs that God has given us to sing uh, when we are feeling certain ways, right? Designed to help us feel our emotions, experience life in a way that honors and glorifies our Creator. And this morning's psalm, Psalm 51, is a song for repentance. That's kind of the occasion. It's a song for repentance, a song that Israel that, and us today are meant to sing as we turn away from our sin and to God and His grace. That's what repentance is. Uh, we read it from the Shorter Catechism earlier. And the reality is that we all find ourselves this morning in, in a position of needing to repent, right? Uh, we, we all sin regularly. Now, here's the thing. No one ever believed they were a sinner just because they were told so, right? Like, no one ever believes that just you're a sinner. Oh, well, now that you've said it. Uh, you might be here today, and you might hear that word, sin, and immediately believe, you know, oh, man, the sermon's, you know, going to be so shaming. This is, what, this is what's wrong with Christianity. It's all about what not to do. It's all about sin, all these things. Uh, and what I would encourage you, if, you know, maybe you're new to Christianity or uh, you've been around it a long time and you're thinking about sin and it starts to get a little abstract, can I just explain for a second? We all know that sin is a real uh, aspect of our lives, whether we're Christians or not. Um, I would say it like this, uh, three vignettes, uh, three little pictures before we read the word about sin and what it is. Uh, and first vignette, in the wake of two world wars, 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr observed this. He said this, the doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith, right? The doctrine of original sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. What he means by that is, as he watched 
you know, uh, two world wars take place and the atrocities of the Holocaust and things, he said to himself, you know, the only thing I can be sure about is that this world is not the way it's meant to be, right? The only thing, the only thing I can absolutely prove for certain is that, and if I can prove that, then that means there is a good, right? If I say, like, that seems unjust, well, what is just? How did you come up with that, Right? Uh, we know that there is some sort of objective sa- uh, standard, but, but that's just out there, right? That's just macro level. Think about this. Um, my wife and I have watched uh, a, an HBO series called The Last of Us, which is about zombies and things. Um, that's not a recommendation. It's just a thing that I've, we've done. Uh, there's a scene in one episode where one of the characters confesses to another that he betrayed and murdered a man who was actually trying to save a whole city from these zombies, right? Costing the city safety and security just so that he could save his own brother. It's like, my brother was more important to me than this whole city. And he, the murderer turns to the other character and he asks, am I the bad guy? He asks, am I the bad guy? He wants to know, am I the bad guy? Here's, here's the point I'm making. Even when we try to help people... You know, this, this show is not a Christian show by any means, but they understand that on some level, even when we're trying to do something good for a brother or something like that, it inevitably gets mixed up and we do the wrong things, right? We say the wrong thing at a funeral. We unintentionally insult our friend. We're short with our spouse or our kids. Like, these are things that we, even when we try to do well, and in theory, we love our families, we find ourselves coming up short, And this is even, third vignette, this is even known popularly. Uh, Taylor Swift, the great theologian of our age, uh, she says in the song Antihero, I have this thing, this thing, we call it sin. I have this thing where I get older, but just never wiser. I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Right? You don't even need to believe the Bible to believe that we make a mess of things, really. This morning's psalm invites us to do something with that. Right? However you came here this morning, you have experienced sin. You have committed sin. And the question we all have to answer is, how are we gonna, what are we going to do with that reality? And God has given us these words, Psalm 51, to sing when we sin. It gives us a path of repentance, of turning from sin to God. So that brings us to our big question this morning. This is really where we're going to camp out. If you're a note taker, this is the thing we're going to be really focusing on. How do we repent? Right? How how does one repent of their sin? Uh, Let's read Psalm 51 and find out. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Uh, Dear God, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Uh, Let's dive into our passage. We attempt to answer the big question this morning, how are we to repent? Let's look at verses 1 and 2 to start. Look with me there. In verse 1, the psalmist begins by rehearsing the character of God. Right? He says he is merciful, steadfast in love, abundant in mercy. Now, how does the psalmist know these things are true about God? Well, uh, this has been said many times before in the Bible. In fact, uh, it comes from God's revelation of his name about himself in Exodus 34. Uh, he says the same things about himself there as the psalmist repeats here. Uh, verse 6 of Exodus 34 says this, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But the psalmist doesn't just talk about God's character, right? That's, that's who he is and what he's even revealed about who he is. But he, the, the psalmist also talks about his provision, God's provision. Look at me at the tail end of verse 1 and end of verse 2. Here, the psalmist refers to the ritual baths that were carved in the, the limestone at the southern approach of the Temple Mount, where worshipers would bathe themselves before coming into God's presence in the temple. The psalmist is recalling this ritualistic cleansing that God provides for his people to blot out their transgressions. And the psalmist will return to this same point, this cleansing, in verse 7. Look there with me, in verse 7. The psalmist is either alluding, you know, this hyssop purging, right, uh, is either alluding to a ritual for cleansing a leper from Leviticus 14, in which a priest would use a branch of hyssop, and a hyssop branch is just a... Um, it has little kind of microfiber hairs on it, and uh, it, would, it does very well to pick up little droplets, and you would sprinkle it. And when you would kind of flick it, it the blood would come off on the person who needed to be cleansed, right? It could be the Leviticus 14 uh, issue, but it could also be from Numbers 19, where uh, those who come in contact with a dead body uh, will need this kind of uh, cleansing with a hyssop branch. In either case, both rituals in their biblical context, in Numbers 19, Leviticus 14, they end with the exact same words, the exact same promise. If you do this, 
He shall be clean. God provides a way for cleansing. But even the writer knows that these are just rituals that that are symbols of a deeper reality. Look at verses 16 and 17. As good as the Old Testament sacrificial system was, right? Its efficacy was tied to the inward reality that the outward signs represented. He knows that, you know, uh, sprinkling water has purifying qualities, right? Blood and death are the required consequence of sin, but water and the blood of goats and bulls is not a fitting punishment for rebellion against the living God. The writer of this psalm does not know yet, right, what these signs are pointing to, just that they're signs. They aren't the full thing, right? Something inward, something real has to happen. And we know, from the benefit of hindsight, that one day these these are just pictures of what is to come in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death on the cross and his resurrection. The point is, God had provided in in the Old Testament and still provides in a fuller way in Jesus, a way for relationship with those who have sinned. God has done this in his character and in his provision, right? That God is merciful and that he provides for people uh, ability in his actions and what he has done to make a way for relationship with himself. As we repent, right, we do so with apprehension, This is how the the word that we used earlier in the Shorter Catechism, with apprehension of God's merciful disposition toward us in word and in deed. This is actually our first answer to our question, how are we to repent? We do it with apprehension of God's mercy. We do it understanding God's character and and, and how he acts in the world is shaped by his merciful and gracious heart. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, I was pretty little. Um, I think this is a stage all kids go through. I only have a four-month-old son, but I, I know that this is probably coming for us, and some of you will have experienced this. Um, th- you get old, just old enough that you can reach up and grab a door handle, and then basically all of them have to be opened all the time. Uh, and and uh, I would do this particularly to my parents' bedroom, and they liked their privacy, and I would come in unannounced. I would just you know open the door and walk in, and my parents did not like that. Uh, and so they told me, you have, to say, you have to knock. Nick, you have to learn to knock. You have to learn to knock. You know, when you're like four, you're like or three or whatever, you're like, hey, I got it. I, you're going to have to tell me that at least a thousand more times before it registers, right? And so I, I got into this habit of doing this. Well, one night, uh, I'm sleeping in my bunk bed, and I get sick. And I vomit on, like, into my bed. And I do what all little kids do when they're sick. You know, I go, I climb down out of bed, and I go to my parents' room, and I reach up for the door, and I turn it like I always do, except something has happened. It's locked, right? And, I, and in that moment, I think to myself, you really did it. You opened the door one too many times, right? And, and now they don't want to talk to you anymore, right? They don't want to, they don't want to deal with you. So I go back into my bed, and I continue to get sicker and sicker through the night. I take, a, I take sheets. Every time I get like, sick, I just take a sheet and throw it over the top, pillowcase, throw it over the top. My parents find me the next morning. You can imagine the scene. I'm just covered in uh, what I have excreted through the night, right? And my parents are like, 
why didn't you come knock on the door? Why didn't you come get us? And I said, you locked the door. You didn't want me to. I thought you didn't want, you didn't want me to bother you. And in that moment, right, uh, they realized, like, you know, I had internalized the idea that they would be harsh with me if I woke them up. They didn't want me to bother them. This is us in our sin. Do you believe that God is ready to receive your vulnerability, that he won't hold your sin against you, that he is who he says he is, and he is how he has, he has lived on this earth? He came in Jesus eating and dining with tax collectors and prostitutes and hanging out with people who were sinful, loving them, moving toward the people who have sinned, right? What do you think happens if you go knocking on God's door? Will he shame you? Will he tell you, shape up, right? Do you cower in fear at the thought of confessing your sin, afraid of what God will do? Here's the, here's the truth, right? You won't appreciate repentance until it is an opportunity to know God's grace, right? This is the starting place for repentance. Without it, without this, without knowing that God is gracious, the rest of the sermon, the rest of what, the whole thing that we're doing here is a moot point. If God is angry at us about our sin and does not want to forgive it, like a physician wants to heal the sick, if that is not what is ha- happening here, then we're all doing this in vain. Right? Uh, what comes most natural to God is this character that he is rehearsing. This is what invites him to actually dare to tell a living and true God who is completely and totally holy, his sin has to be that God wants him to do it and will be kind to him when he does. And I'm asking you this morning not to shrug off this point, right? If we talk about how to turn from our sin, how to get holy, how to do sanctification without first grasping that you cannot earn it, you can't be justified apart from God's grace to you, and he wants to be gracious, then there's no point in going on. Because we can never earn his love, but he wants to lavish it upon us. And that invites the psalmist, even with all the things that he has done, we'll get to that in a second, to trust that God can love him, and in fact invites all of Israel and us today to sing this song no matter where we've come in from, that God wants to love you and forgive your sin. That's the ground of everything else. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are in here are like, well, yeah, you got to get to the repentance. I'm going to get to the turning in a second, but it, because it's, it's, here's the thing. It's not just enough also to know that he's merciful though, right? It's a good point. Right? Plenty of people, uh, in fact, if you probably canvassed the streets, if you walked around uh, you know, this town on any given day and you asked people, is God loving, they would probably say yes. Right? He's loving and kind. But sometimes this, this aspect of God's character is used as an excuse to sin. Right? And it actually leads people to sin more, not less. They have not walked the road of repentance as this psalm presents it. Yes, God is kind, but what else does it say? Look with me at verse 3. Look with me at verse 3. The psalmist says he knows his transgressions. Now, this might simply imply or might seem to imply that the next step is simply an awareness of sin. But that would ignore the second part of the verse, right, that expresses something much deeper, sorrow and regret, Uh, Contrition is another way to say it. The the reality is that it's not enough just to know you've done something wrong. 
Contrition, emotional regret over the sin committed is the proper response to sin. It should not simply be unfeelingly apologized for and then moved on. God's not a, uh, a sin vending machine. You say, I'm sorry, he dispenses grace. That's not how it works, right? There is an appropriate sadness and grief over our sin because it is God against whom we have sinned. It lies ever before us. God gives us these words to show us the gravity of our sin. And it is grave. The Bible claims that the ultimate standard is God's law, that he has decided what is right and what is wrong, and that all violations of that law land us in the guilt of sin. This is why in verse 4, David, the author of the psalm, can say to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Right? The occasion of this psalm, while we're all invited to sing it, what, what causes David to write this psalm is that he has slept with another man's wife and then murdered that man to, to cover it up uh, when she becomes pregnant. The true offense, he says, even in the heinous act that he has made, right, is that he has principally, primarily sinned against God. Sins are sinful primarily because they are acts of rebellion against God and secondarily because they hurt people. Because God has created everything, the psalmist says, it is his stuff, it is God's stuff, including ourselves, including our own bodies, that we wreck when we sin. He knows best how we are to function. Just as, you know, if you go to the car dealership and you get a lease on a car, Right? It, has, it comes with an owner's manual. Right? If you say, uh, yeah, well, it's their car, it's the, dealer, it's the dealership's car, so I'm not going to change the oil. Right? And you turn, try to turn it in five years later, having not changed the oil once, uh, you know, driving it normally, this will not go well for you. You have done something wrong against the dealership. Primarily, you know, yes, you hurt the car, but really it's who owns the car that you have hurt. Now, this might seem to lessen sin's impact, that people are hurt secondarily when we sin, but understood rightly, what this means is that uh, this relationship to our Creator gives our sin more weight, not less. Or you might think that, oh, well, if it's, just, if it's primarily God, then, then at least you know, it's not that big of a deal. As long as I'm not hurting these people, God's not going to do anything to me. That's the opposite that is true, right? Whereas sometimes you might sin and think nobody saw this. Nobody knows what I did. Nobody's hurt, right? The little white lie, the what, you know, uh, what you've watched on a computer, what you've watched on TV, any of those things, right? You might think nobody, nobody's hurt by this, what you think in your own mind. But the truth is that like, whereas people might miss your sins, God never does. I'm reminded of a friend that I had in uh, undergrad in college who I caught him cheating on his girlfriend, and when I confronted him about it, said, what she doesn't know won't hurt her. Right? That may, that may very well be. She was not hurt, like, in the time. She did not know that she was hurt. But here's the thing. It will not escape God's gaze. Right? Which means that even when no one knows what you've done, right? like, even when you don't think you've, you've caused any sort of ripple effects, God knows. And that means every sin we have has weight. We've committed has weight. That God is the primary offended party of our sin ensures justice for the secondary parties, right? Uh, it, it, it makes certain that anyone we have wronged, including even ourselves, there will be justice. God does not let anything 
go, any bad deed go unpunished, right? This weight of God's judgment is probably what leads the psalmist to his conclusion about himself in verse 5. Behold, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We need to confess our sin because we are bad car owners, all of us, from day one. From day one, we don't obey the manual as we should. Verse 5 lays it out clearly. From the moment we are conceived, before we are even born into this world, we are in sin. We are enemies of God from conception. So to summarize, besides apprehending God's mercy, repentance requires contrition of our sin, right? Actually feeling the weight of what we've done, acknowledging the offended parties, right? Knowing that, yes, primarily it's God and secondarily other people, and admitting that we have, we have no, uh, nothing in ourselves that deserves forgiveness, right? Complete need for forgiveness. This three-part process is what the Bible calls confession, Right? This is why we do this every week as part of a service. Right? It's our, and it's our second answer to the question this morning, how are we to repent? We repent by confessing our sin. Right? With apprehension of God's mercy, we confess our sin. We tell the truth about ourselves. Now, if we just confess our sin to God, is that it? Does that make it good? We, we, you know, including feeling you know, the right amount of sorrow over it, is that the end of repentance? saying that we're sorry, not according to this psalm. Look at me at verses 8 through 12. Uh, the psalmist turns his face from sin uh, to God at this point. Here he looks to a new life in the wake of his confession. In verse 8, uh, the ESV that I read this morning has it translated that his broken bones are rejoicing. But the basic meaning of the root verb for rejoice here is actually to shake or to tremble. Another way of translating this is, let the bones dance that you have broken. This is no half-hearted look for help. The psalmist wants a fully restored relationship with God. In verse 10, he asks for a new heart. In verse 11, he asks for the Holy Spirit to remain in him, working through him to follow God's law, thrive in his presence. In verse 12... He asks for the joy of the Holy Spirit that is a benefit of being justified, adopted, sanctified by God. The psalmist is asking for nothing less than a turn from his sin and what it deserves to God and his grace and is resolved to do nothing less. This is our third and final answer to the question, how are we to repent? We turn from sin to God. In summary, right? how are we to repent? With apprehension of God's mercy, we can confess our sins and turn from them to God. Now, what does turning to God look like? Turning to God is a, is a fundamental uh, means of what it, uh, what it is fundamental to what it means to follow Jesus, right? And it's only possible for those humble enough to repent. In Luke 5, uh, we read about Jesus meeting a tax collector named Levi, and he's, uh, Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi gets up, follows Jesus, and he actually throws a great feast in his house. And there's a large company of tax collectors, and uh, the Bible says, and others, right? You can just fill in who the others are, right? Reclining at table with them. This is a rough and rowdy crowd, so much so that Pharisees, the old-fashioned people, you know, um, in Jesus' day, these were highly moralistic people, Right? They come and they ask the disciples, 
Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The derision in their voice. And this is how Jesus answers them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There are two types of people in this world, right? Tax collectors and Pharisees, those who know they are sick and those who believe they are well. Part of what it means to be in a restored relationship with God is that we continually know that we are sick. That's part of what it means to turn to God is is to bring your sickness to the great physician. Anything less than that is Phariseeism, and Jesus is very frank about that. I have not come for the healthy. I have come for the sick. And what uh, what does it mean that he has come for the sick? What does it look like? Levi throws a party. You know, when we read the shorter catechism, we read something like endeavor after new obedience. And that sounds like, yeah, you just got to trudge, pull up your boots and, and get after the obedience. Stop, stop your sinning or whatever. What Jesus defines it as, like what, what actually happens when new obedience comes to Levi is he invites sinners into his home. Right? He, he wants to tell everybody about how great it is. He is excited and lives a beautiful, happy, joyous life knowing that he is forgiven and loved by Jesus. That is what his repentance looks like. It looks like a giant party. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, writes, I had not noticed uh, either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. He says, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Right? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. Right? What Levi did when Jesus came to his house. Right? Uh, Lewis concludes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. What is this new life? What does it look like to turn to God? man? What would it look like for for living hope to be a place where people are turning from their sin to God? It would be a party. It would be a party where everyone wants so badly to tell everyone in this city how amazing the best news you'll ever hear. Not everyone will believe it, but I'll tell you who will. All the people who know they are sick. And guess what? There's a lot of people. It's everybody. That's what, we, that's what, what the psalmist is putting in front of us today. That's why he is going to tell everyone of God's great works is because he has beheld God's mercy. And we can too. In Jesus, today, God has died on the cross in your stead, taken on your sin, resurrected to new life, and is inviting you to do the same to be resurrected, to to forget those ways and turn to him where he will be gracious to you and you can enjoy the party that is living in his world the way he has uh, specified. Let's pray that that will happen this morning. Uh, Lord, thank you for Psalm 51. I thank you for the good news that it presents to us that um, we do not have to treat you like you have locked the door or that you will shame us if we go knocking, but instead, uh, you have made a way 
both in, in, in deed by sending your son, but also in even who you are. You are merciful and gracious. That is how you want to receive us. And Lord, I pray we would believe that and that that would shape our hearts into new obedience, which looks like um, loving your world the way that you love it, forgiving people that we wouldn't normally forgive, caring about people who are difficult, um, even, uh, you know, even in our own minds and hearts, being ruthless with the sin that is there uh, and endeavoring after following you because uh, you know best and you love us. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.